Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Michael Chong, the Member of Parliament for Wellington, Halton Hills, and the Conservative Party's Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister. I'm grateful to speak with him about the upcoming parliamentary session, including the persistence of hybrid sittings and why he thinks MPs need to get back to work. Michael, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Great to be here, Sean. Parliament, like other workplaces, needed to adapt to COVID-era lockdowns and restrictions, and that came to manifest itself in what's become known as hybrid parliament. What does that mean in practice, and what's it been like? Well, what it means is that parliament really is operating in two on two parallel ways. One is parliament that we've always known about, which is in-person sittings, whether it's on the floor of the House of Commons or it's at one of two dozen House of Commons committees. Um, up till the pandemic, everything was done in a physical forum where you had to be physically present in the House of Commons or in one of its two dozen committees to participate. Uh, when the pandemic came, uh, a virtual parliament was established in parallel to the physical sittings. And that virtual parliament exists on Zoom. Uh, and so one can now, members can participate in either person or they can participate over Zoom, whether it's in the proceedings of the House of Commons itself or in one of its two dozen committees. You recently posted a social media clip of one of your parliamentary speeches in which you make the case for ending hybrid parliament in favor of a full return to in-person sittings. As of today's recording, it has nearly 160,000 views in counting. What's your argument, Michael? Why are in-person sittings better than hybrid parliament? Well, first off, let me say we are an outlier again uh, amongst democracies in that uh, we're the only major democracy to still sit in this hybrid format, even though the pandemic has uh, passed us uh, and the, you know, the, the period has, is now well in the past. And so if you look at uh, the United States Congress, they're not sitting in hybrid format. If you look at the European Parliament, they're not sitting in hybrid format. If you look at the UK Parliament, they abandoned uh, hybrid sittings in July of last year, over a year ago. Uh, so we're an outlier. Uh, and so the current system of hybrid sittings is uh, does two things. It makes Parliament much less efficient. It takes a lot longer to get things done. And the second thing is it significantly reduces the accountability of the government to the House. Uh, and I can expand on those points uh, later, if you wish. 
Yeah, well, let's pick up the accountability point in particular, because I suspect that that's something that listeners would zero in on. Uh, How has hybrid parliament undermined the the role of parliament in holding the government account in, in your view? Well, first off, uh, ministers frequently aren't physically present in the House or it's two dozen committees. They simply zoom in from home. And it not only reduces the decorum and the dignity of the House and thereby its authority, because many times they're in their living rooms or, you know, in some casual setting, uh, wearing casual clothes. Uh, it also reduces the accountability because they don't, uh, you know, they don't have to be uh, physically present to answer uh, pressing questions. They can often read from scripts on their screen without having the physical cut and thrust of debate. In addition, they don't have to physically attend to the House. In other words, they don't have to go through the press gallery that is sitting in the foyer uh, that lays behold, you know, that that sits in front of the entrance to the House of Commons. Um, and so they don't have to, they can avoid the scrutiny of dozens of journalists uh, who are eager to ask some questions about their portfolios. Uh, and so in so many ways, it reduces accountability. And uh, not not to mention the fact that it really slows down the work of the House and its committees. I, I would just say in parentheses for, for listeners, uh, I've, I've observed some of the question period sessions in the hybrid parliament model, parliamentary model. And it, it seems to me the tendency for ministerial answers to be you know, detached from questions is, is only heightened in an environment where you're not facing um, your questioner face to face. Michael, what is behind the persistence of hybrid parliament anyway? Who's behind it and what's the motivation? Well, quite simply, uh, it's uh, two people are behind it. Uh, it's the government House leader and the House leader of the New Democratic Party. Both of them have worked together to ram through a motion that uh, prolongs hybrid parliament when it should have been ended long ago. And so we are in this situation because uh, these two House officers have decided that it works for them. Um, all it does is it weakens the accountability of the government to the House. And I might add, I think the NDP who are participating in this um, are doing so because you know they're essentially in a confidence and supply agreement with the government. Um, and so they're comfortable in supporting the government and propping it up and don't have a, a focus on accountability like the op- other opposition parties do. You know, I might add, Sean, it takes a lot longer to get things done, and, and it weakens the authority of the House. And, and I'll give you one little example of what I'm talking about to highlight this, uh, this situation. We have hundreds of votes a year in the House of Commons, votes on everything from legislation to motions uh, to orders of the House. You know, some years I think we could have upwards of 500 votes. Uh, so we vote a lot. And that's to give your audience a sense of how important voting is and, and how often it takes place and how much time it consumes. Before hybrid parliament, a typical vote could be conducted in eight minutes of 337 members of parliament who voted. There's 338 members of parliament, but one of them's a speaker. So 337 members could vote in eight minutes. Every single member would stand in their place and indicate their yay or nay for a particular vote. So there was public accountability about how that vote uh, was done. And all members could see, because everybody was present in the House, who was voting which way. Uh, With hybrid, you lose that. You don't see the other members on mass voting because they're voting on an electronic app. 
And so it's often hard to figure out who's voted which way. And you lose a bit of the ability to talk to other members about their vote and, and to understand where they're coming from. But the other thing that's happened is that votes take almost double the time they previously did. And so they now take upwards of 12 minutes to conduct a vote. So if you multiply that across 500 votes a year, you're looking at a lot of lost hours uh, in the House of Commons because of the electronic voting app. And and additionally, the perverse incentive the system provides is not to attend to the House and not to physically be present in the House for a vote. And here's why. When you're on the electronic voting app, all you need to do is literally take about 10 seconds to vote on your iPhone. And then you're done. And then you can go back to doing your your work uh, in your office or doing your laundry at home or, uh, you know, frankly, uh, jogging down the street or whatever the case may be. You can do whatever you want after you've completed that electronic voting on your iPhone app for that took about 10 seconds. But the members in the House have to remain in their seats for the entire duration of the vote from the beginning to the end and are not allowed to do something else. They're not allowed to get up and go to the bathroom. They're not allowed to go and uh, do some research in the Library of Parliament. They're not allowed to do anything. They have to remain in their seats for the duration of the vote, which takes now 12 or 13 minutes. So not only does it take a lot longer to do the vote, there's actually a perverse incentive to completely bypass the House of Commons and instead stay away from Parliament and use the electronic voting app. And so the, this is just one example of the myriad of changes that hybrid parliament has introduced that has weakened the authority and the processes in the House of Commons. And as you say, Michael, not only is the, are there these efficiency and accountability questions, there's also just something off about the sy- symbolism of parliamentary votes occurring the same way that people use Tinder shifting to the left or the right. What has been the reaction to your speech? What do your parliamentary colleagues think? And more importantly, what have you heard from your constituents? Well, first off, the reaction has been heartening. Um, I've been surprised at the number of people who have come up to me over the last several months and said, look, I, I listened to your speech in the House, and I really agree with you. And I hope these proposed reforms and this end to hybrid parliament happens. And so it's been heartening to hear from ordinary Canadians uh, who are strongly in support uh, and who are concerned about what's going on. A lot of my colleagues, uh, most of my colleagues, in fact, I would say all of my colleagues are strongly in support of ending ending hybrid parliament. The challenge is that we don't have the majority of the votes in the House of Commons, uh, because while the Bloc Québécois and the Conservatives support ending hybrid parliament, uh, the NDP have a supply and confidence agreement with the Liberal government and uh, are supporting the Liberal government in extending hybrid parliament. You know, I've heard from people, though, outside the Hill, ordinary people who follow politics, who are very supportive of some of the reforms I've proposed, but equally uh, supportive in ending hybrid parliament. So that's been very, very heartening to see. This is an empirical statement, but I, I think my hypothesis is right. It's also the case that the Conservative caucus would be disproportionately representative of parts of the country where MPs have to travel a lot to get to Ottawa. So it's notable that it's the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois who support a return to normal sittings and the, the Liberals and the Democrats who are my instinct to support is more concentrated in and around central Canada and thus have to travel less that are the ones maintaining it. 
You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. On a separate yet related topic, Michael, you you mentioned that as part of this speech, you also set out three specific recommendations to strengthen the role of MPs and improve the functioning of Parliament. What are they and, and how would these recommendations or reforms improve things? Well, the three reforms in brief are first, uh, to get rid of the list system that has been in place now for decades, which essentially strips MPs of the right to speak in the House of Commons and instead gives that authority to the party leadership. Uh, the second ref- set of reforms is to reform committees where most of the work of the House of Commons is done so that committee chairs and committee members are elected by their peers in the House of Commons through a secret ballot vote rather than being appointed by the party leaders. And the third set of reforms is to strip the prime minister of the powers of appointment he currently has over a myriad of posts that are fundamental to the functioning of the House of Commons, whether it be the law clerk and parliamentary council of the House of Commons, whether it be the the clerk of the House of Commons, uh, whether it be uh, half of the members of the Board of Internal Economy or the Sergeant at Arms. Currently, all those positions are in effect appointed by the Prime Minister and in many respects beholden to him. Um, we're unlike most other Westminster parliamentary uh, systems in that the Prime Minister holds these powers. And so the third set of reforms I proposed was to strip the PM of those powers of appointment and instead give them either to the Speaker of the House of Commons or to uh, members of parliament on a secret ballot vote. I just have a final question on this topic, and then I just want to look ahead to the upcoming parliamentary sitting. Michael, why do you care so much about parliament and the independence of MPs? Why are these issues ones that you've chosen to champion in your political career? Well, quite simply, Sean, I believe that parliament is the most important thing that we have invented in our society. It is the most important thing that has ever been created in Canada. It, it's important, the most important thing, because it's laid the foundation for everything else. It's laid the foundation for the rule of law, for the freedoms and liberties that we enjoy, for the justice that we enjoy, for the social outcomes we enjoy. You know, to be sure, there have been huge advancements in society and technology and medicine and so many other areas of our life, but they all rest on a a foundation of parliament. Now, to be clear, I don't mean parliament uh, in a very specific sense. I'm talking about a system of government that is embodied by checks and balances on power. And so what we call parliament here in Canada, in the United Kingdom, they call Congress in the United States, they call l'Assemblée Nationale in Paris, Uh, They call the House of Representatives and Senate in Australia and so on and so forth. What characterizes all of these systems of government is that they are democracies uh, that are based on the fundamental principles of 
uh, checks and balances on power, that the accountability is not just the single act of voting for five minutes in a general election every four years. The accountability is the ongoing checks and balances on, of power between the different parts of the system. In our case, between the head of government, our prime minister, and the legislature, our House of Commons. Uh, that takes place each and every day between the elections that take place once roughly every four years. And so I believe that those checks and balances on power and the idea that power cannot rest in any one single place has created the foundation for what we have enjoyed, what we enjoy today. And if you look at history, the advances that we have made as democracies over the last several hundred years have been unprecedented uh, in human history. As far back as we know from recorded history, we've never seen advances that we've seen in the last several centuries, most particularly advances that have largely come from democracies whether it's the sharp decline in poverty that we've seen over the last several decades, whether it's the advances in technology, whether it's the advances in medicine and so on and so forth. So I believe strongly that this is the foundation, a democratic system of checks and balances on power. And that's why I feel so passionately about renewing the system for the next generation of Canadians that will be elected to it. Because if we can renew this institution, and make it relevant for the 21st century, make it a place where ordinary Canadians seek election and use their talents to advance the greater good, I think we're going to have a future in this country that's very bright and prosperous indeed. But if we don't do those sorts of things, and the institution atrophies, it doesn't keep up with the times, uh, then I, I fear for our children and grandchildren's future. I said that this was my final question on the topic, but let me just slide one more in, if you don't mind, in, in, in response to those terrific observations. Our conversation so far has lamented the persistence of hybrid parliament and its impact on accountability and so on. But the Conservative Party has just gone through a leadership race that was precipitated by members of the Parliamentary Caucus invoking your Reform Act and, in effect, kind of exercising their democratic and parliamentary role in these matters. Is, there, is that a, a reason for optimism? And are there any other signs of optimism that Parliament as an institution is going through that kind of reinvigoration that you've just talked about? Yeah, I think there's cause for optimism. I think some of the changes that the Conservative Caucus has implemented over the last several years is cause for optimism. My hope is that other Parliamentary Party caucuses take a look at those changes and adopt them as well, not necessarily in the exact same form, uh, perhaps in their own way. But I think it's empowered the Conservative Party. It's also, I think, ensured smooth transitions in power. Uh, and I think it's, it's really uh, a model that uh, I hope other party caucuses take a look at. I'm optimistic as well about the ongoing public interest in parliamentary reform. I think that's ultimately what's going to drive further changes uh, in the House and in Parliament. Um, you know, it's a wonderful system that we have. It's endured for many centuries. Uh, and I think there's a new generation of Canadians that has taken interest in this whole topic, judging from the chats I have with students at schools across the land. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm generally optimistic about uh, where this all goes. Let's move on to some of the issues that may dominate the forthcoming parliamentary session. In a March op-ed in the National Post, 
you called the Russian invasion of Ukraine a, quote, serious violation of international law and called on the government to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. In the intervening months, a lot has happened. Um, but in recent days, the Ukrainians seem to be effectively pushing back. Uh, what at this point, Michael, should the Canadian government be doing to better support the Ukrainians? Well, the single biggest thing we can do to support Ukraine in its fight against Russia is to cut off the source of funds for the Russian war machine. That by far and away is the most important thing we can do. Uh, Canada uh, is not a big economy uh, and a big mil- does not have a big military. And so while military aid is important, uh, it's far outweighed by what we could do in cutting off the source of funds for Putin's war machine. And the fact of the matter is that since the invasion has began, over 100, since the invasion began on February 24th, some six months ago, over $100 billion has been transferred from outside of Russia to Russian hands for the payment of oil and gas, far outweighing the totality of all Western military aid provided to Ukraine. Most of that oil and gas has been purchased by Western Europe from Russia. Uh, Russia supplies some 40% of Europe's natural gas. And Russia has used this not only to fund its war machine, but to threaten Europeans and disunify the alliance uh, by threatening to cut off the gas. So the one thing Canada could do as the fifth largest natural gas producer in the world is we could make it our stated goal as a country to displace, let's say, a third of all Russian gas in the next 12 to 18 months. This is technologically achievable. It is doable. And in fact, other countries are already doing that. The problem is the current liberal government has has shown no interest in stepping up the plate to assist our allies in Western Europe in doing this. And so, once again, we're sitting on the sidelines uh, pretending as if uh, we can't help. And I think that's a travesty for the alliance. I think it's travesty in terms of our proud tradition as Canadians and stepping up the plate to help allies. You've also been very active on the China file, including the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations. What did you think of U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? And do you think Canadian parliamentarians should continue to, to visit Taiwan? Absolutely. It's been long-standing policy of democracies, both Canada and the United States, as well as other democracies, to send delegations of legislators to Taiwan. That has been going on for decades, and Speaker Pelosi's visits to Taiwan uh, was part of that long-standing convention and long-standing tradition. The fact that the leadership, the communist leadership in Beijing has changed their position on this whole matter is not something that should change our position on uh, the question of China and Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is a first world democracy uh, with with long-established principles uh, that are based on freedom, uh, the rule of law, and democratic rights. And so we should be supporting Taiwan as it struggles to establish itself against an ever-menacing China. And so you know, in that context, I think the prime minister's comments that suggest that the trip wasn't appropriate are completely out of line. And they're not just out of line in terms of his own, uh, in terms of, 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 you know, the current context. They're out of line with longstanding Canadian policy. As for domestic policy, 
what are you going to be looking for in the new parliament? And do you sense, Michael, that Canadians are starting to recognize the limits of large-scale deficits and rising public spending? I do think Canadians are starting to understand the dangers of huge deficits and ever-increasing amounts of unsustainable debt. And I think that's clear because many Canadians are struggling to pay the bills as a result of the Bank of Canada's uh, rate hikes. Uh, And so many of them are facing much higher monthly mortgage bills, much higher lines of credit uh, bills, and many other bills. And so I think they understand now the need for us to get our federal finances under control. Uh, And so I think the focus of the government uh, should be on combating inflation and ensuring that life remains affordable for ordinary families across the land. And it's not something that they've been focused on. Uh, In fact, uh, their recent budget moves have been quite counterproductive. They have been pouring fiscal fuel on the fire by adding to spending every several weeks. And that's only making the Bank of Canada's job even more difficult as it tries to combat uh, the rising inflation we've been seeing. And just in parentheses, it, it comes back to our early conversation in which, as the government announces, new and new incremental spending seemingly every couple of weeks or every month, it, it's even more important for Parliament to be in session and be able to ask tough questions and hold the government accountable for its ongoing fiscal profligacy. Finally, I'd be remiss, Michael, if I didn't ask you about the official opposition itself. What do you think the new leader and the rest of the team ought to be focused on? And where is there room to make a positive contribution to the policy agenda? Well, I think the new leader and and the party caucus needs to be focused on ensuring life is affordable for Canadians. And that means combating inflation. You know, the Bank of Canada is trying to do its job on the monetary side of the equation. Now, Parliament and the government needs to do our job on our side of the equation, which is to ensure that the spending that the government is doing each and every day isn't pouring fuel on the fires of inflation. Uh, And so we will be holding the government's feet to the fire on announcements they've been making that are only only contributing, further contributing to the spiraling cost of everyday goods and services. And so that will be our focus as we enter the fall sitting. MP Michael Chong, this has been a fascinating conversation. Good luck with your efforts to bring in-person sitting back to Parliament. Appreciate you joining me today for Hub Dialogues. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.